Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with support from Pratt & Whitney, committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. Dohop, revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. And Sirium, the world's most trusted source of aviation analytics. Visit Sirium.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, wishing everyone a happy Valentine's Day. If you ever want to understand airline ticket pricing, just think about the price of roses on Valentine's Day. That's holiday or summer pricing at its best. Scott McCartney. Happy Valentine's Day to you, Ben, and I think you're so right. I love that reminder on how supply and demand works. And I wonder why the government doesn't go after the, quote, junk fees of florist delivery charges on Valentine's Day. You could check a lot of bags at an airline for the same money as having a dozen roses delivered on Valentine's Day. And by the way, Ben, this has nothing to do with airlines. But I got curious on the origins of Valentine's Day and thought our listeners might be interested, too. You may already know this. It started with a Roman priest named Valentine in about 270 A.D. Claudius the Cruel was the ruler, and he banned marriages and engagements in order to get men to join his army. Valentine continued to perform marriages for young lovers in secret. When Claudius found out, he had Valentine beheaded on February 14th. He was named a saint after his death. In truth, the real story is unclear, but it is very clear why roses are so much more expensive on Valentine's Day, just as it's clear why airline ticket prices are more expensive in the summer or at Christmas. Very true. You know, they say you can't build the church for Easter Sunday, and that's the problem airlines have. They only have so many planes, so when demand picks up, prices go up. Absolutely. So interesting. Ben, we're going to talk this week to our good friend Jay Sorensen, who is the leading expert on ancillary revenue and loyalty programs. We thought it would be a good time to talk to Jay about all the pressures on airline fees and all the profits coming out of loyalty programs. There really are some big changes going on at full-service airlines, which are increasingly managing their businesses, it seems, to drive loyalty program memberships. Some interesting news items this week. First, congratulations to you, Ben, and JetBlue for bringing back JetBlue executive Marty St. George as president. Joanna Garrity took over as CEO on Monday, and Marty will be back by the end of the month. After leaving JetBlue, he's been working with LATAM in South America 
I love Marty, not just because he's a fellow Bostonian, but also because he's a super smart marketing guy and a savvy airline strategist. Seems like a great move for JetBlue. And speaking of love, since it's Valentine's Day and all, Ted Christie isn't loving Wall Street analysts and others chirping about possible bankruptcy in Spirit Airlines' future. The Spirit CEO says the ultra-low-cost airline will have the liquidity to pursue its standalone plans should the JetBlue Spirit merger plan fail to overturn a federal judge's ruling on appeal. He also said it was, quote, ridiculous, quote, for the government to claim the court ruling was a victory for consumers. Instead, the court ruling preserves the airline oligopoly that hurts consumers. Christie said Spirit's plan to return to profitability will be to focus on stronger markets like Fort Lauderdale and eliminate underperforming cities. That, coupled with growing demand for domestic travel, should get Spirit back to positive operating cash flow by the second quarter and beyond, he said. Spirit reported a net loss for the fourth quarter that just ended of $184 million, which was less than Wall Street expected. That was the good news. The bad news was that the average passenger fare fell a staggering 25% in the fourth quarter to $48.24, and non-ticket revenue, all those fees, fell 6.6% to $66.60 per passenger. For the full year, Spirit had losses of $447 million. In the past four years, I added this up, Spirit has had a total of net losses of $1.9 billion. Amazing. First, I'm very excited to work with Marty again. I agree. He's great. And he and Joanna will make a super team. On Spirit, it's funny saying they're now going to focus on underperforming routes. Isn't that what airlines always do? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. uh, All of a sudden, hey, maybe we need to stop doing things that lose money. Yes. And Ben, some interesting news out of Washington this week. First, FAA Administrator Mike Whitaker testified before a House committee last week and said that the FAA is midway through its review of Boeing manufacturing, but he already knows that changes must be made in how the government oversees the aircraft manufacturer. The FAA in the past let Boeing move to a lot more self-inspection, a self-reporting system. It obviously has not worked. Whitaker said the FAA has two dozen inspectors inside Boeing's Renton, Washington factory right now where the 737 is made, and a half dozen or so in Wichita, Kansas at Spirit Aerosystems, the supplier of the 737 fuselage. Whitaker said the FAA will keep some inspectors in factories after the audit of safety procedures is done, though he doesn't yet know how many. On the other side of the Capitol, the Senate Commerce Committee approved the FAA reauthorization with some interesting changes from the House version. The House voted to raise the mandatory airline pilot retirement age to 67 from 65. Mike Whitaker, by the way, 
had told the House that he thinks that shouldn't be done without appropriate safety study. The Senate Commerce Committee voted 14 to 13 to reject raising the retirement age to 67. One other change the Senate did approve, a proposal from Texas Senator Ted Cruz to require special treatment for political VIPs like Ted Cruz at TSA checkpoints. The measure would require a security escort to whisk lawmakers, federal judges, cabinet members, and some of their family and staff through expedited screening outside of the public view. TSA would have to provide this, but it could arrange for airport police to do the escorting. Airports complain that this would take officers away from important regular duties. Cruz claims this is necessary because lawmakers, judges, and cabinet members face death threats, not because he was embarrassed when seen at the airport going to Cancun when Texas was in crisis with a deadly winter freeze and power grid failure. Maybe Ted Cruz just needs clear membership, Ben. What do you think? We could give it to him for Valentine's Day. I think that would help him. That's a silly piece of law and very selfish, I think. That said, I like Mike Whitaker's caution about raising the pilot age. He's not saying it's wrong. He's saying, let's understand it first. That's practical. Yeah, absolutely. And this is what Congress should be doing all along. Uh, You know, the 1,500-hour experience requirement for pilots, same thing. There hasn't been study on that. Um, We don't know if that's the right number. Um, And we don't know if 67 is just as safe as, as 65. So let's do some research and find out. I totally agree. And I wish Congress would stop trying to micromanage the regulations and and put some put some thought behind it. Speaking of thought behind it, Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without our thoughtful sponsors. And we are very proud to have support from such an impressive lineup of great industry partners. We want to thank Cerium, which offers the most accurate and precise data and analytics to enable airlines to optimize planning, operations, and passenger services. The right intelligence drives operational efficiencies, enables you to predict market shifts, and helps airlines respond quickly to maximize revenue, manage costs, and seize commercial opportunity. Cerium's broad range of aviation data products and analytics are designed to ensure planners and operations managers have access to the data they need on demand or integrated into their existing data systems or delivered as part of a passenger solution. The most trusted solutions to plan with confidence and operate efficiently. Visit Cerium.com for more. We also want to thank Dohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Duhop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com 
That's D-O-H-O-P dot com. And we want to thank Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they are committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. All right, now let's talk miles and points and fees with Jay Sorensen. Jay Sorensen is president of consulting firm IdeaWorks. His research and reports have made him a leading authority on frequent flyer programs and ancillary revenue. He's a regular speaker at several major conferences and has testified to the U.S. Congress on ancillary revenue issues, and his clients stretch all over the world. His career includes 13 years at Midwest Airlines, where he was responsible for marketing, sales, customer service, product development, operations, planning, financial analysis, and budgeting. His favorite activities are hiking, exploring, and camping in U.S. national parks with his family, and, believe it or not, riding Amtrak. He's a dear friend to both Ben and myself, and we're delighted to welcome him to Airlines Confidential. Jay, great to have you with us. Thank you. Happy to be here. Jay, it's a, it's a fascinating time in both the loyalty realm and ancillary revenue. Let's talk about loyalty first. We saw airlines borrow billions of dollars by mortgaging their loyalty programs, and we saw loyalty programs produce the bulk of earnings for a lot of airlines this year. Delta is using free Wi-Fi to drive SkyMiles membership signups. United and American have both talked about basic economy fares as a path to attract new customers who will become new loyalty program members. Did you ever think you'd see a time when the loyalty program was so important to the airline? Well, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, not, but, not, but not in this way, uh, because, you know, the loyalty programs you know, at, in, at their best, generate revenue by encouraging people to buy a lot more tickets. And at the end of the day, uh, that is the best way an airline can make money. So I saw that loyalty programs are going to play a big part uh, in, in, in the finances of airlines, certainly not in, in, the, in the realm of co-branded credit cards. And just give us an idea of how important is the co-branded credit card now? So in the U.S., we estimate that co-branded credit cards generated about $25 billion in revenue uh, for the U.S. airlines uh, in 2023. Now, to give you a point of comparison, the rest of the world, that number is $10 billion. Hmm. Among the top carriers in the U.S., uh, co-branded credit cards or frequent flyer programs now represent about 11 to 20% of their revenues. The twenty percent number, uh, surprisingly enough, is is attributed to Southwest Airlines. Among the top four carriers, all are above five billion now, and about ninety, and that's five billion uh, per carrier in frequent flyer revenue. And traditionally, about ninety five percent of that is from Cobrant credit cards for U.S. carriers. The big three all have more than a hundred million members. And just for comparison, you know, those are that those are obviously giant numbers, but we can't forget the hotel side of this as well. Marriott Bonvoy has more than 177 million members. Mm. Wow, 
Well, what could change that might threaten this, Jay? Well, there certainly is a lot riding on on co-branded credit card uh, portfolio revenues. And, you know, if you were to look at the profit levels for the U.S. carriers, uh, you know, it's easy to understand that co-branded credit cards are the are the profit generating um, components for U.S. airlines. And that worries me. Uh, because it should be the airline business. And I know that some would argue that these co-branded credit card programs really are the airline business now because they do sell travel one mile at a time. But in terms of threats, I worry about the fact that all over the world, the trend for interchange caps or merchant fee caps is for them to exist. I mean, regulators all over the world, Australia and Europe, have placed caps on what global networks, uh, Visa and MasterCard, what they can charge merchants. And that is what funds the co-branded credit card uh, reward travel benefit. And also, you know, the major bank, quote-unquote, partners for the U.S. airlines, American Express, Chase, and City, they are also major competitors uh, to the airlines because each of them have their own travel reward cards. And then we have Capital One out there, uh, which I think really could grab a tremendous amount of, of space in the market uh, as it relates to the sale of a travel travel retail. So with that, has has consolidation in the airline industry made loyalty programs more more powerful? Um, because I, I don't know, because we have the the big four and and so the programs, are themselves more consolidated? Is that mattered? Oh, I think it has a tremendous impact. You know, let's 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 say, for example, one of the big four airlines has a hub located someplace in the U.S. And then let's say that a new entrant wants to start service at that hub. That incumbent airline only needs to do the following to completely kill any chance for that new entrant to survive. And that is the following. A, what markets are they flying to? Let's say from this hub, this mysterious hub, they're flying to Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C. Okay. So let's offer five miles per mile flown or dollar spent to those three destinations. Okay. And then where is that new airline drawing customers from? What geographic area in in that city? Okay. Let's tailor that offer to members who live in that area. So what, what I'm creating here is really a bulletproof way for these airlines to, to defend their turf. They can dial in whatever offer they want, and, it's a, and it becomes a very powerful offer because it can be so targeted and because uh, they know the, the habits of the most prolific travelers in their market. So, yeah, these programs are very powerful. And consolidation has made them more powerful. Jay, initially you alluded to the fact that these programs are more powerful in the U.S. than in Europe or Asia. Why is this? Is it the airlines, the banks, or the governments? Well, Ben, 
um, you've kind of have, have answered the question for me. So thank you. Let me, let me add some color to it. Uh, first off, the U.S. has a credit-oriented culture. There's no hesitation for most consumers to use a credit card to pay for merchandise or services and then to carry a balance. And many cultures in the world are credit-averse. Uh, the U.S. is not one of them. So that's number one. Number two, coming back to that interchange cap discussion, uh, there is no interchange cap in the U.S. on credit cards. There is a there is an interchange cap, by the way, on debit cards. Uh, and when I talk about an interchange cap, I'm talking about every time you buy something from a merchant, one and a half to three percent of that purchase is paid by the merchant to uh, process the credit card transaction. And that revenue was realized uh, principally by the bank that issued the credit card. And, and that revenue is what's used to buy the miles or points that are put into your account. Number three, there's strong bank support in this country for co-branding. And I've, this is not a universal thing across the world. I've been to any number of different airline clients where they are very frustrated in getting the national banks or the major banks in their country to even share the interchange revenue with them, with, with an airline, uh, to create a, a, a co-branded portfolio. So we, we have hit the, the, the troika here in terms of uh, three important elements, and that's why uh, the activity is so strong in the U.S. So you've tracked the decline in value of the frequent flyer mile or point year by year, and, and um, <laughs> I had great fun writing about this with you. Um, it, because you've you've tracked the cost of award trips, um, we've seen airlines increasingly selling premium seats instead of awarding them to top frequent flyers. So the upgrade is kind of a, a, a thing of the past. How have airlines managed to reduce the payout to program members and at the same time increase the popularity of the programs? I've not conducted that survey since 2019 because the pandemic wiped out really the, the meaningfulness of that data. So I can only offer conjecture. I think that, um, well, obviously during the pandemic, uh, reward availability was not a problem. <laughs> the demand, reward demand was, was the issue. Uh, people didn't want to fly. And I, I don't think that there was any, has been any type of major uh, dilution in value uh, since the pandemic. You've asked a very good question, and I think that they have emphasized the other benefits of holding these cards, and that is, of course, the the, the no charge for baggage, the bag the, the baggage allowance, early boarding, and they're building in other benefits, including uh, having card spend uh, help you accrue uh, more loyalty points so that you can uh, have elite status. So. They clearly are pushing these cards. They clearly have been successful. I think the consumer has accepted the current reward value. Uh, and this has all worked well for them, when they, especially when you add in the other benefits. But I think there is danger in terms of um, elite benefits for, for program members. Well, let's switch to ancillary revenue. Your annual yearbook tallies how much airlines collect from fees. What have you been seeing? 
Well, I think the pandemic certainly has changed a lot about travel. And I don't, it's part, part of the changes that were wrought by the pandemic will gradually fade, but there's a whole lot there that is not going to fade. So we estimated for 2023 that global ancillary revenue was about 118 billion. Among, we also looked at in January, how is this uh, divided up between different types of carriers? In U.S. major airlines of that 118 billion uh, saw the share of nearly 38 billion. Uh, so they play a major role, and that's courtesy of the co-branded credit cards. And I include co-branded credit card revenue as an answer revenue source. Traditional airlines, um, 42 billion. And then the residual that is, is from the low-cost carriers. But coming out of the pandemic, people were spending more on, on, on all of the a la carte items. And so baggage increased, um, seating increased. And seating, I think now, is competing with baggage for being the largest uh, source of ancillary revenue. And that's an amazing leap uh, from just a few years ago when the majority of airlines did not charge for these, uh, for assigned seats. And that came out of the pandemic, I think, for two reasons. First, people found a more personal, a better sense of personal safety if they knew where they were sitting on the plane and, and obviously next to someone who was in their traveling party. But more importantly than that, the front of the airplane became more important because you didn't want to be in the back breathing everyone else's air, waiting to get off the flight upon arrival. And so being the front third of the airplane uh, became important, and the airlines charged a premium for that desire among passengers. So with all those fees, we hear politicians, including President Biden, complain about airline junk fees. Are consumers being deceived or cheated in any way here? Well, I think that there are plenty of areas where consumers are deceived uh, in in the industries apart from the airline business. And, you know, <laughs> let's 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 talk about uh, health care uh, in terms of uh, the bill that you receive when you visit a doctor or, God forbid, a hospital, uh, all of the amazing stuff that's on that. And there seems to be little uh, interest in trying to fix that problem. But <laughs> let me get back on track. Um, in terms of the airline, just to, just to keep you off track, Ben and I have been talking about uh, Valentine's Day delivery fees and <laughs> fees for roses. <laughs> well, I do, I do, I do fear sometimes that I have unleashed a bit of a uh, 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 evil spirit uh, with my involvement in in a la carte and answer revenue because it certainly has been something that has been adopted uh, by many many other industries. Yes, uh, but. Coming back to the, the to, to the question in terms of what is happening here. Well, you can't separate low fares today from ancillary revenue activity. You can't have one without the other. And if you want to have an environment where low fares are possible, you have to have the ability for airlines to generate revenue by offering optional extras. You just can't say, oh, we want the low fare part. We don't want the fee part. It do, the world does not work that way. And so... The government certainly seems in conflict at the present because we have the Biden administration, which uh, wants to get rid of fees. And then we have the Department of Justice, who has held up Spirit Airlines 
as the paradigm of virtue for consumers. And so I am really confused. I obviously am on the side of, of an ancillary revenue or a la carte approach and in a low fare approach because I think it just provides access for millions more travelers who would not normally be able to afford uh, flying. I think that's a good thing. And I think the Biden administration seems to believe that you can um, split this in two and have low fares uh, without fees. That's just not possible. Jay, when I was running Spare, we pioneered unbundling. Do you think airlines should do more or less of this? Well, okay, so... There is, there is some confusion around the term unbundling, and let me define it as I, as I understand it. And that is, at one point, airlines included an array of services in the price of a ticket. So the ticket included a seat assignment, perhaps some type of snack on board or on a longer flight, some type of meal, and uh, a couple of pieces of check baggage and some other, and the ability to, to uh, phone up the call center without any other charges. So that, that was called a, a bundled product, or I think I would call it today a, a traditional airline product. And it, it largely is a part of history now. It doesn't really exist very often in reality. So when you say unbundling, I believe that that is uh, an airline saying, okay, we're going to have a basic fare. And if you want to have uh, things like if you want to check a bag or if you want to have a seat assignment, you're going to pay extra for those things. You'll save the most money by not having those items, by not choosing those items, and you will gradually build up the price of, a, of your travel if you add things back. Now, as is often the case, the marketplace has a way of creating subtle differences. And so today we have something that are called fair bundles. So we're, what we're doing, and I, and I attribute this to good old McDonald's, and that is, you know, at one point, all of us have had a value meal someplace in the world. And the value meal taught us that if you buy a hamburger by itself and add fries and a soda, you're paying more. And if you bundle this all together, it's a value meal, and you're presumably going to save money. And so branded fares came out of that, and the branded fare approach is where an airline, if it's going to be the best approach, it's going to offer a good, better, and best, or three branded fares, and the consumer will choose between these, and these will include some elements of travel, big elements, maybe baggage, maybe seat assignments, and then after the consumer has made that decision, as they continue in the booking path, there may be a couple of other a la carte options that the airline will toss at them to build the check more. So that that really is the I think that is the most revenue-generating method right now um, in the airline business. Let me ask Jay, if you ran an airline, would you spend money finding alternative revenue sources? No. I think that in the the world that that exists today, everything that probably is possible or meaningful to offer to a customer is being offered by an airline someplace. So I don't see that there's any new products that have yet to be discovered. I think the revenue management going in the forward in the future is going to be 
the pricing and promotion of those products. So many of these products are not very conveniently sold or purchased through uh, travel agencies, uh, through GDS, so through global distribution systems, or even through uh, online travel agencies. So that's one area that I think revenue would be uh, generated through greater distribution of, of ancillary revenue or a la carte choices. Secondly, the pricing of these items, and that is, you know, the airline industry has done an absolutely history-making job of applying or really defining revenue management, and this needs to be applied next to a la carte fees. And so I think going forward, you're going to see things like well, we already see seat assignments uh, pricing uh obviously varies by the seat on the airplane, but I think we're going to see it vary in the future uh, according to demand and perhaps even baggage as well. Uh, Seeing flexibility or uh, dynamic pricing, it's called, but it's it's basically just pricing according to demand. Well, there's a challenge. You say there's nothing new to charge for. I ask... (laughs) <laughs> to prove you wrong. <laughs> and those cards and letters should be sent to Ben Baldanza. <laughs> well, continuing your McDonald's uh, analogy, clearly the industry missed an opportunity um, because if you wanted, when somebody booked a, a, uh, a seat, uh, there should be the option in terms of extra legroom or upgrades to just say, would you like to supersize that? <laughs> Actually, if we if we were to go back into Ben's history, uh, he did that with the perfectly named product called the Big Front Seat at Spirit Airlines. Absolutely. So, so Ben, by the way, do you have any ideas for things that should be charged for that aren't? I don't dare say. <laughs> All right. So, so Jay, if you could, continuing the theme, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you change about loyalty programs? And what would you change about ancillary revenue and airline fees? Well, let's talk about loyalty programs first. And that is, um, I, with my client work, I tell my clients, I advise my clients, hey, look at loyalty as a three-legged stool. And the legs are communication, the loyalty effect, and cash. And I want that stool to be an even stool. I don't want to have one leg a whole lot longer than the other or larger than the other. I want to have balance. And so let me define these three legs. One is the loyalty effect, and that is when you accrue points and you're able to spend the points, uh, people become more loyal. They buy your product more often because they want to enjoy the benefit of reward travel. That's the loyalty effect. Communication goes two ways. I, as as an operator of a loyalty program, know a whole lot about your travel habits. And likewise, uh, you as a member of the program, I can communicate to you about uh, the airline and its services almost perfectly because I know what type of consumer you are. I know what interests you. And then the third leg is cash. And that is the cash generated by these programs through these partner activities, principally cobra credit cards. And I think what has happened here is that the cash leg has been tremendously overemphasized to the <laughs> chagrin 
of the other other two legs. And so I think the the stool of loyalty is currently out of balance. Mm. Now turning to ancillary revenue, there was a guy who owned a department store chain on the East Coast called Sims. And the founder of that store, that menswear chain, was, I think, Cy Sims. Cy Sims, yeah, absolutely. Cy Sims had a slogan, an educated consumer is our best customer. And I love that for its simplicity and for its truth. And I think that airlines take shortcuts and intentionally are deceiving in the process of selling a la carte products. And I think that that has a bad outcome. It has an unintended outcomes uh, in terms of government regulation and uh, degrading an airline brand. And so my, my wand would wave to encourage airlines towards truthfulness, transparency, and value. And, and you know, here's one example. You know, if you, if you have purchased something on an a la carte basis and the airline can't provide it, the refund should be automatic. It shouldn't be something that you have to hunt and peck and beg yeah. for. Yeah, or oh, have it be yeah. non-refundable when it's yep. uh, when the airline bumps you out of your extra legroom seat or right. first class seat. Yep. Well, Jay, if you really had a wand, why not just educate all consumers? Well, I wasn't assuming I had that big of a wand. <laughs> and on that note, thanks so much for being with us, Jay. <laughs> maybe, maybe Ben, your wand is larger than mine. I don't know. <laughs> well, until the last few seconds, it's been a delight having you on the show. We we really appreciate it. It's been fascinating, Jay. I, I've learned a lot. I think all of our listeners have. And, uh, and we really appreciate it. I'm so glad you could be with us on Airlines Confidential. Oh, thank you for the invitation, guys. Thank you, Jay. We'll be back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration provided by the Archive.net. Celebrating 20 years with a fresh new look and over 60,000 items of AvGeek goodness. It's the hub of air transport history, and you're welcome aboard the Archive.net. Thanks again to Jay for some important and insightful thoughts. Ben, I want to remind listeners that Airlines Confidential will be on stage for a keynote podcast at Aviation Festival Americas on May 15th and 16th in Miami Beach. This is the 16th year for Aviation Festival Americas, and it brings together more than 250 influential leaders from the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you'd like to attend, listeners can get a 50% discount by going to airlinesconfidential.com, clicking on the Aviation Festival banner ad, and using the promo code AC50. It's going to be a great event, and we are looking forward to being part of it. And Ben, I want to correct something I said a few weeks ago about antitrust immunity. Following the Boston federal judge's siding with the Justice Department that the JetBlue Spirit merger would be anti-competitive, I quipped that Justice had even given antitrust immunity to big airline alliances. A sharp-eared listener pointed out to me that that was incorrect. 
The Department of Transportation handles antitrust immunity for international alliances. Congress saw that as part of international aviation policy, which is the domain of DOT and the State Department. Typically, DOJ has opposed antitrust immunity in international alliances, but DOT prevails. In the case of JetBlue Spirit, justice is in charge of government policy because it's two U.S. companies involved. I'm glad to be corrected on that. Okay, on to the mailbag. Joe from Victorville asks a simple but profound question. What would airlines do in the hypothetical worst-case scenario the 737 MAX doesn't fly again? Joe, I'd point out that the MAX 9 is already back in service again, and the MAX 8 is much more widely in service and has been flying for some time now. The MAX 7 and MAX 10 remain grounded because they haven't yet been certified. But I suppose it's a legitimate question if, God forbid, there would be another serious safety flaw discovered that wasn't fixable. Fixable is the key question here. It's highly, highly unlikely that there would be a flaw that wasn't fixable, but given the history of this airplane, certainly not impossible. What would happen? I think airlines would fly older 737s and A320s a lot longer, but there would definitely be a worldwide aircraft shortage. I went into the Cerium database, now that they are a sponsor and have access to it, and all that great data, and found that there are exactly 1,417 MAX jets in service at airlines worldwide right now, and a lot more on order. Airbus doesn't have the manufacturing capacity to replace Boeing production completely. You might see more interest in other narrow-body airplanes, such as the Chinese Comac C919 or other offerings from Embraer. Ticket prices would certainly jump higher, like roses on Valentine's Day, right? Some wide-body jets might get deployed more on domestic routes where two frequencies could be consolidated into one. An airline like Southwest would probably have to suspend service to a bunch of cities, and Boeing, if it could survive financially, would have to race to design a new narrow-body airplane. That's a very expensive proposition, especially when cash isn't coming in from 737 deliveries. There might be a very difficult choice for government of having to bail out a company for its own deadly flaws. In short, it would profoundly change travel and our country. You agree, Ben? Totally. But good thought, Joe. Thankfully, I don't think we're going to see this. But the idea of Boeing starting now to design a replacement makes sense. Absolutely. Well, that's all for another episode of Airlines Confidential. Sending love and roses to everyone on Valentine's Day and special thanks to Jay Sorensen. We'll be back next week with much more. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.